Thank you, Joe and band. I think the word about now is past the sunscreen. It's getting warmer out here, but what a beautiful day. We're glad you came. We do invite you back, not, not at 7.30 to the church, but at 7.30 Sunday morning at Lobo Stadium where we have our sunrise service. We also trust the Lord for good weather on that day. And then we'll have our two normal services after that um, here at the church, 9.30 and 11.15. The big news right now everywhere is the election. It's on nightly news. There's election updates. There's new terms that some voters have never heard before, like superdelegates. We're wondering what's all that about. All of the names of the presidential hopefuls are big news. In fact, early this morning, I heard a noise outside my door, and it was a hot air balloon that landed on my street. And so I got out there to help the uh, balloon crew, and the first guy out, I introduced myself, and he told me his name was Clinton. That was his first name. And then the immediately right after that, he said, please, don't vote for me. I said, don't worry. But you know what? Though the election is big news, the bigger news is the news that nobody thinks about. The bigger news is what's going on spiritually in our land, in our world. Nobody cares. It's not on the news what, what revivals are going on in South America or over in Asia or the hundreds of thousands of Muslims that are coming to know Christ. That never makes news. The election makes news, but the really big news, nobody knows. 2,000 years ago, it was no different. 2,000 years ago, uh, people were concerned in Israel about politics. After all, Rome had conquered the world. After all, the big worries of most people was, will our taxes increase? Will Rome oppress us more than they already have been? The politics of Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, Quirinius of Syria, those in the Decapolis, that was the big news. But the really big news, the most important news, was happening at Passover in Jerusalem. On Sunday, Jesus arrived into town on the Mount of Olives, rode down on a little donkey. The crowds cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the one who comes in the highest. The following day on Monday, Jesus entered the temple area, a large courtyard like we have here. And there he spoke about what was up ahead. He spoke of the cross. He spoke of the precision of the timing of the cross. He spoke of the plan of the cross. And he spoke of the purpose of the cross. In John chapter 12, where I'm going to read from, in verse 20 we read, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. In turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Jesus mentioned in verse 23, the hour has come. One thing you notice when you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, is that Jesus' whole life was marching in precise rhythm to the will of, a, of His Father. He was always thinking about the time, the hour, being precise in His obedience to the Father. In the second chapter of John, when Jesus is at the feast, the wedding feast at Canaan, and His mother suggests that there's not enough wine for the guests. Jesus' words were, My hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 7, the Bible says they tried to lay hold on Jesus, but His hour had not yet come. The very next chapter, when Jesus was in the temple treasury, in John chapter 8, He said, He said these things in the treasury, and they tried to lay hold of Him, but his hour had not yet come. In the very next chapter of John, John chapter 13, it says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then when Jesus in John 17 utters his prayer, the first words out of his mouth is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then Jesus will be arrested, taken to the Garden of Gethsemane. And from the Garden of Gethsemane, He will go to the courtyard of the high priest. And there He says, The hour has come that the Son of Man must be betrayed. So all through Jesus' life, He spoke about the timing, His hour and that it was coming, and now Jesus makes mention of that again. God always keeps perfect time. God is never late. Never late. My dad used to pick me up after school. He was always late. If he wasn't late, it was out of the ordinary. My mom was on time. My dad was always not on time. God is always on time. I love what Charles Spurgeon used to say. He said, the great clock of the universe keeps perfect time. There are no loose threads in the providence of God. So God kept the time, and it was the perfect time for the cross, for the redemption. Now further on, Jesus in the same section of John 12 tells us about the plan, and he does it in the form of a parable. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, this little parable is symbolic of his own life. Jesus, in line with his parable, is the seed that would die and be planted in the ground, his burial. Because if Jesus didn't die on the cross, he would abide alone. He would enjoy the glories of heaven alone. 
he would enjoy the splendor of eternity alone. But his plan was is that he, the seed, should die and be planted in the ground because then millions upon millions, multitudes of people would come to have eternal life because of the seed that dies, because of his death and his burial and his resurrection. So there's the great paradox. And, and here is why we celebrate today. Because life comes out of death. Our life comes out of the death of Christ. People think that celebrating communion and, and celebrating and worshiping on the day that the one we love died, people in the world think that's morbid. It's because they don't get it. Our life sprung from his death. So the seed dying, being planted in the ground, and then the resurrection. As you take communion in a few moments, as you take it and you celebrate and you meditate upon the death, burial, and resurrection, know that when Jesus was facing the cross and dying on the cross, that he had you in mind. It was all worth it to be able to purchase you. You're the fruit that sprung from the seed that was buried. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, the second verse, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He saw the cross and though it was to be despised and it was painful and it was shameful, his thoughts were, but it's worth it. It's worth it if that person and that person and that person could one day reign and rule and live with me forever. It's worth it. It's the joy that was set before him. It's what prompted him to go to the cross. And the first taste of that joy was the thief on the cross. The one that Jesus turned to and said, Hey, today you will be with me in paradise. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. Jesus right next to you saying, Today you're going to be in heaven. And you know what? You're in the right place at the right time. God knew your name. God called your name. God saved you. And through his death, he has brought life. Now, in the text that we're reading, it says that a group of Greeks came and said, We want to see Jesus. And then the disciples came and said, Hey, there's a group out here. They're probably Grecian Jews, I imagine, the Feast of Passover. Lord, they're interested in you. They want to see you. And as soon as Jesus hears those words, he launches into that little parable that we just read. Now, the Greeks who came would have certainly known more about nature and philosophy and science than they would have Old Testament prophecy. That's why Jesus gives such a simple, common illustration of his death and burial. But here's the point. They said, we want to see Jesus. Jesus' answer is, a seed has to die first and get buried. The point is this. A lot of people talk about Jesus. They love Jesus. They love Christmas because there's the little baby Jesus in the manger. But you know what? Unless you see Jesus through the lens of his sacrifice on the cross, you miss him completely. If you want to see Jesus... You must see Jesus as the one who came to bear the burden and the load of sin. 
We want to see Jesus. Do you really? Okay, here's the Jesus then that you're asking about. He's going to die on the cross for your sins, be buried, and through that act enable you to have everlasting life. So the precision of the cross. He speaks of the plan of the cross. And then he speaks of the purpose of it. The very next verse, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. At this point in Jesus' little speech in the temple courtyard, he shows emotion. He says, my soul is troubled. A better word is deeply agitated. He's experiencing the emotion of what he's about to undertake. He recognizes the cost of securing the salvation of sinners is a tremendous cost. The weight of all of sin, the wrath of, of God on all sinners will be just placed on him alone. In 2 Corinthians 5:21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was feeling this at that moment. And he said, my soul is troubled deeply agitated because he knows the kind of sacrifice he's about to face. Later on, when he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, before that event, he prays even, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Jesus' whole life, the whole purpose of his entire life was for this precise hour. His soul is troubled, and he says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. This is the very purpose for which I have come. This hour. Think about Jesus' birth that we celebrated just a couple months back at Christmas. The purpose of that birth wasn't so people could get a day off once a year, so they could get a sale on gifts for their friends or family. The purpose of Christmas was the cross. Isn't that what the angel said outside of Bethlehem? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And when the Magi visit the baby Jesus some months later, they give him gold and frankincense and embalming fluid. Myrrh is embalming fluid, predictive of his coming death. And his whole life was lived for the cross. Jesus said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. He predicted the cross throughout his life. 
And the reason that Jesus Christ will come again and reign with us forever and ever is because of the cross. That's the whole purpose of God from eternity past is the cross. There's a theologian by the name of Graham Scroggy who said, if you cut the Bible anywhere, it bleeds. And as you look through the Bible, through the lens of the cross, you find that to be true, don't you? You look at the life of Abraham and you wonder, why did Abraham sacrifice what God called his only begotten son on Mount Moriah, the same hill Jesus would be crucified on, if not to predict the cross? When Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, that was predictive of me. When David wrote Psalm 22 and he predicted crucifixion before it was even invented by the Persians, that was predicting Christ. Cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. And this is what you ought to know about your New Testament. Most all of the New Testament Gospels center around the events of the cross. Think of it this way. There are four Gospels. And in all of those Gospels, there are only four chapters that cover 30 years of Jesus' life. Only four chapters deal with the first 30 years of Jesus' life. But there are, in contrast to those four chapters, 85 chapters that deal with the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. Of those 85 chapters, 29 of those chapters cover the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And of those 29 chapters, 13 chapters deal with the last day of his life. All in all, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth before his crucifixion comprise 579 verses. So what is the great theme of the Bible? What is the great theme of the gospel accounts in the New Testament? It's the cross. It's the sacrifice. 